Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. A treaty of peace between the United States of America and the tribes of Indians called the Wyandots, Delawares, Shawanees, Ottawas, Chippewas, Patawatomas, Miamis, Eel Rivers, Wees, Kickapoos, Piankashaws, and Kaskaskias, to put an end to a destructive war, to settle all controversies, and to restore harmony and friendly intercourse between the said United States and Indian tribes, Anthony Wayne, Major General commanding the Army of the United States and sole commissioner for the good purposes above mentioned, and the said tribes of Indians, by their sachems, chiefs, and warriors, met together at Greenville, the headquarters of the said army, have agreed on the following articles, which, when ratified by the President, with the advice and consent of the Senate of the United States, shall be binding on them and the said Indian tribes. On August 3, 1795, the Treaty of Greenville was signed at the military headquarters at Fort Greenville in the Northwest Territory between U.S. military forces under the command of General Anthony Wayne and the representatives of various Native American nations dubbed the Western Confederacy. It would mark the end of the conflict known as the Northwest Indian War, and marked the start of a new era in the history of what is now the Midwest. How this treaty came about, though, is a rather interesting story, one I'd like to share with you at the start of this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry, and thank you for joining me. Before we dive in, I'd like to take a moment to thank my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. He's been a strong supporter of this podcast from the very beginning, and I cannot thank him enough for all of his contributions, both in terms of audio and behind-the-scenes advice, morale, and support. Je squasque tu sois moi, and je te suis. Now, it's been a while since we discussed the Battle of Fallen Timbers, episode 1.22 according to my notes, so let's get caught back up on what's happening with General Wayne and his Legion of the United States. As stated in that episode, the Battle of Fallen Timbers on August 20th, 1794 proved to be a decisive victory in the conflict with native forces in the territory, though of course there was no way for the Legion to know it at the time. Indeed, the battle had been, quote, more a skirmish than a battle, and the days ahead had not been pleasant for Wayne's forces. Quote, as on all its wilderness expeditions, the Legion had had supply problems. Wayne's men had endured some lean days since the Battle of 20 August. Moreover, they had left scores of men and officers in the new forts they had built, Adams, Defiance, and Wayne. However, on November 12th, Wayne and the remainder of the Legion arrived at Fort Greenville and were, quote, saluted by artillery fire, then were treated to a celebratory feast. Wayne had sent offers to negotiate peace to the native forces through several channels, but as he had heard no word back as November faded into December, he continued to maintain readiness at Fort Greenville. Finally, in mid-December, delegations of Native Americans began arriving at the fort to discuss peace terms. The Native nations of the region had voted unanimously to fully renounce British protection since it had done them little good to date, and instead to seek terms with the United States. Once all the nations sent representatives to the fort, 
Wayne called for a grand council on June 15, 1795. This meeting would prove to be, quote, the largest full-scale meeting held between the United States government and several Native American tribal leaders, both in its time and today. And Wayne would make good use of that. Not only was it intended to bring about a peace agreement, but Wayne also, quote, wanted to exhibit United States power and discipline to the best advantage. He had the troops on parade all the time, smarting their movements and uniforms. He would also make moves towards diplomatic niceties by constructing a new council house in the fort's garden for the council attendees to deliver speeches. And Wayne allowed the wives of officers to join them at Fort Greenville. It would prove to be mid-July before some of the key delegates arrived, but ultimately they were all assembled. Prominent Native leaders, including Little Turtle, Blue Jacket, and Tarhe, met with General Wayne and his officers. And finally, on August 3rd, they all signed off on the treaty that had been negotiated. One of the dozen white men who would sign the treaty, and indeed the youngest of that group, was a 22-year-old lieutenant named William Henry Harrison. Methinks we'll be hearing that name again on Down the Line. So what exactly did this treaty do besides end hostilities? The Treaty of Greenville, quote, addressed hunting rights, trade, the relinquishment of land, and establishing a system to mediate complaints. There was also a prisoner exchange and, quote, a one-time grant of $20,000 of goods, followed by a distribution of $9,500 annually. However, the most important provision for the United States was, quote, the ceding of title by the native peoples to approximately two-thirds of the present state of Ohio, plus 16 parcels of land surrounding U.S. military posts and strategic points still on Indian land. This was a major concession of land to now open up to settlement, where previously white newcomers to the area had been restricted to settlements hugging the Ohio River. I'll post a map on the source notes page for this episode to give you some understanding of what this meant. But suffice it to say, this was a game changer in what would come to be Ohio. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This would ultimately be looked at as a victory for the Washington administration. But at the time the treaty was being negotiated at Fort Greenville, the president and his advisors had problems on hand that were taking precedence over developments in the Northwest Territory. As we left off last episode, Washington was summoned back to Philadelphia from Mount Vernon in August by his Secretary of War, Timothy Pickering, with a vague but ominous quote-unquote special reason. Now, it should be noted that Pickering hadn't relied on only his own word to bring Washington running back. As discussed last time, Pickering did not enjoy the level of confidence with Washington that Secretary of State Edmund Randolph, a fellow Virginian who he had known for decades, did. Thus, Pickering and Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott Jr. had met with Randolph on July 31st and had Randolph write a letter to Washington at 10 p.m. requesting, quote, that, if possible, you should return for a few days to the seat of government. Nothing but the general crisis of public affairs leads to this recommendation. Randolph's letter suggested that this had to do with British Minister to the U.S. George Hammond being recalled to England. And while Pickering referenced his recall and asserted that he was, quote, disposed to believe that before his, 
Hammond's departure, some useful and perhaps very important arrangements may be made to facilitate the compliance with the condition on which the advice of the Senate for ratifying the treaty was suspended. It doesn't read as if that was the quote-unquote special reason. Indeed, Pickering in his letter makes a point of informing Washington that quote, Mr. Walcott and I, with Attorney General William Bradford concurring, waited on Mr. Randolph and urged his writing to request your return. He wrote in our presence, but we concluded a letter from one of us, also expedient, and urged at the end that, quote, this letter is for your own eye alone. It was clear that something was up if this much secrecy was called for, and with the Secretary of State himself being left out of the loop. Washington had not enjoyed the trip to Mount Vernon quite as much as he would have hoped, as he was concerned about the uproar over Jay's treaty and expected to be called back to Philadelphia at any moment. For a few days, he himself was out of the loop, as torrential rains washed away bridges that, quote, isolated from the rest of the world, his part of Virginia. When the post finally started running again, both Randolph's letter and Pickering's were in the midst. And so Washington headed off in early August on a six-day journey, which found him arriving back in Philadelphia at dinner time on August 11th. The president sent word to Pickering of his return and settled in to a dinner with Secretary of State Randolph at the president's house. Pickering described the scene as follows, quote, Upon receiving word from Washington, I hastened to the president's house, where I found him at the table, and Randolph, cheerful and apparently in good spirits, also at the table. Very soon after taking a glass of wine, the president rose, giving me a wink. I rose and followed him into another room. What, said he, is the cause of your writing me such a letter? That man, said I, in the other room, pointing towards the room in which we had left Randolph, is a traitor. Longtime listeners to this program will not be all that surprised at that revelation, as this was discussed briefly in episode 1.22. Randolph had been carrying on behind-the-scenes talks with French minister to the U.S. Jean-Antoine Joseph Fauché, which in and of itself was not unusual. Alexander Hamilton had plenty of conversations behind the scenes with British agent George Beckwith and British minister Hammond to reassure them any time troubling events occurred or it was feared that the government was taking too much of a pro-French turn. The problem was that Randolph's conversations with Fauché seemed to have involved Randolph being, at the very least, indiscreet with the French minister and discussing internal affairs such as the Whiskey Rebellion, but also possibly colluding with the French through the Democratic-Republican societies. How did Pickering and the other cabinet members learn about all of this? Well, a British frigate, the Cerebus, had engaged a French packet ship, the Jean Bart, in the middle of the Atlantic. As was often done with documents and objects that folks on a ship didn't want an enemy to get a hold of, the French dumped a packet of papers overboard. A British sailor acted quickly and jumped into the water to retrieve the papers. They were dispatches from Fauché back to his government discussing his conversations with Randolph. Realizing the importance of them, the Cerebus's captain sent them up the chain until they got to British Foreign Minister Lord Grenville who in turn sent them to Hammond in Philadelphia. On July 26th, Hammond invited Secretary Walcott to dine with him and shared with Walcott the translated dispatches, which were finally handed over to Washington by Pickering on August 11th. After Randolph and Pickering left, Washington went through the documents. While there was nothing completely damning in them, it didn't look good and alluded to possible further collusion by Randolph, possibly with him being in the pay of the French government. 
Washington already knew by Randolph's own admission that he was hard up for money. He wouldn't have been the first, nor the last, to turn coat for a few pieces of silver. Randolph had also been quite cautious in the past of antagonizing the French or drawing too close to the British, and he was the one always bringing up the threat of civil war. Was it possibly that such a civil war was exactly what Randolph wanted? Randolph did not help his case during the cabinet meeting the next day. Unexpectedly, Washington asked his assembled cabinet to express their, quote, comments on the advisability of immediate approval of the Jay Treaty. One can only imagine Randolph's eyes when he heard this. Up until this point, as we've discussed, Washington had been quite wary of committing to supporting the treaty. He had done everything he could to avoid taking a stand. And Hamilton himself had, in July, expressed his concerns about moving forward with the treaty, especially in light of the new orders in council and the renewed seizure of American ships. Now, Washington was talking about affixing his signature to it right here and now. Bradford, Pickering, and Walcott all expressed their support for immediate acceptance, leaving Randolph the only one advocating caution and deferment. After all had had their say, Washington informed his cabinet that he would sign the treaty immediately. Randolph relented and went back to his office to draw up the acceptance memorial for British Minister Hammond. For the next week, though they would see each other on routine business, Washington and Randolph's interactions were all business and no socializing. Randolph would hand the memorial over to Hammond on the 14th, sharing with him that he had been overruled in the cabinet on the issue of the treaty. Whether it was that or one of the other cabinet members who shared, by the weekend, the rumor going around Philadelphia was that Randolph had been responsible for Washington's delay in signing the treaty. Randolph worked to quell the rumors, and on August 18th was on hand for the brief ceremony in which Washington signed the Jay Treaty. The next day, however, would prove to be the critical day. Randolph was scheduled to meet with the president at 9 that morning, but received word that Washington could not meet with him until 10.30. When he arrived at the president's house, he found that Washington was already meeting with Pickering and Walcott. As described by Randolph biographer John J. Reardon, quote, After the usual greetings had been exchanged, Washington handed Randolph several large sheets of paper that obviously had been folded for mailing. Mr. Randolph, here's a letter which I desire you to read and make such explanations as you choose. Randolph read through the dispatches and recalled that French Minister Fauché had told him in the summer of 1794 of some, quote, machinations against the French Republic, New York Governor George Clinton and myself, involving British Minister Hammond, which he had shared with Washington, to which the president asserted that he remembered something of the matter, but Randolph could provide little details. Walcott asked some more questions about this, but again, Randolph said he could not recall much, but would attempt to collect his thoughts and put them on paper. Washington asked Randolph to step out for a minute, and when he returned, Washington requested Randolph to write up his notes on the matter. And Randolph, realizing that Washington had already become convinced of his guilt, offered his resignation. After leaving the president and the other cabinet members, Randolph returned to the State Department, where, in order to avoid any more allegations of wrongdoing, he ordered a messenger to lock his office and keep the key in his possession away from Randolph. Randolph then returned home and wrote out his letter of resignation to Washington, asserting that, quote, Your confidence in me, sir, has been unlimited, and I can truly affirm, unabased. My sensations then cannot be concealed when I find that confidence so immediately withdrawn, without a word or distant hint being previously dropped to me. 
This, sir, as I mentioned in your room, is a situation in which I cannot hold my present office, and therefore I hereby resign it. Now, this will not be the last we will hear of Edmund Randolph, as he will attempt to exonerate his name, but for now, we must move on. Before we do, though, let's take a moment to consider the second Secretary of State. Edmund Randolph had settled into this new role rather well, but though he had a great influence on government policy for the 19 and a half months he was Secretary of State, arguably more than his predecessor had wielded in the administration during his tenure, Randolph was never able to provide Washington with the perspective that Jefferson had provided about the anti-administration point of view. Likewise, Randolph did not convey that he had a grasp of the breadth of knowledge that Jefferson brought to the table. Instead, as he had while Attorney General, Randolph, quote, had come to be identified with a kind of pragmatic diplomacy, a diplomacy that tested all policy against national self-interest. The removal of Jefferson's passionate opposition to Federalist ideas and policies had left a vacuum which moved Washington and his administration to a more partisan stance that failed to take everything into consideration before making decisions. With Randolph's departure, this shift would carry on. Washington was now faced with the issue of having to find a new Secretary of State as soon as possible. In the short term, Secretary of War Pickering was appointed as acting Secretary of State until Washington could secure a permanent replacement. This would ultimately prove to be a harder process than one would imagine, and was complicated even more by the death of Attorney General William Bradford on August 23rd. What's that, dear listener? You didn't even know he was sick? Well, from the little I've been able to find on his death, it seems that it was rather sudden. He wrote to Treasury Secretary Walcott on the 17th, informing him that he had just fallen ill a couple of days back, and six days later, he was dead. What was it that struck the Attorney General down so quickly? It had been two years since the yellow fever epidemic had turned Philadelphia into a near ghost town, and it seems that in the late summer, early fall of 1795, it made a return appearance. This yellow fever outbreak was not nearly as severe as in 1793, but it was enough to claim the Attorney General who was a little over a month shy from his 40th birthday. Though described by Leonard White as a quote-unquote brief tenure, indeed, in White's extensive study of the administrative history of the Washington and Adams administrations, Bradford only appears in a footnote and in a list of cabinet officials. Bradford had, in fact, been attorney general for about the same amount of time as Randolph had been secretary of state. So what can we say about his 19 or so months in office? Well, not much. His primary contribution to the administration was during the Whiskey Rebellion, and I cannot conclude that his performance in that situation was admirable, as he seems to have worked with Hamilton to push for a military solution, then carried out personal witch hunts in attempts to prosecute certain notable people like Albert Gallatin and William Finley, who were only nominally connected to the rebellion, while, as William Hoagland described it, quote, incompetently ignoring guiltier parties who would have made good examples. Like Randolph, who held the post before him, Bradford as Attorney General was called on to weigh in on cabinet matters, but his doesn't seem to have been a strong influence. Indeed, for his entire tenure, I can only find on the National Archives online database seven letters that he wrote to the President, with the last being from March 9, 1795. He is barely mentioned in even the most extensive studies of the Washington presidency. Is there more to learn about William Bradford? Possibly but that will have to be left to future researchers. For now, we must leave Bradford by concluding that, in his tenure as Attorney General, he seems to have brought little to the role 
or to the administration. Bradford, we hardly knew thee. So now there are two vacancies in the cabinet. We'll delve into Washington's attempts to fill those vacancies next time. But for now, the important thing to note is that the cabinet as it stands, Timothy Pickering as Secretary of War and Acting Secretary of State, and Oliver Walcott Jr. as Secretary of the Treasury, will remain as it is from late August until December 1795. This highly diminished state of the cabinet could not have come at a worse time for the president. Washington's decision to sign the Jay Treaty opened up a new wave of attacks on him, headed by that staunch opponent of the treaty, Benjamin Franklin Bosch. As noted by historian James D. Tagg, quote, Before August 1795, the attack on Washington remained relatively mild. There was criticism of the formality of presidential receptions and Washington's tact-to-turn demeanor. But, quote, after August 1795, Bosch began a far different assault. In the new campaign, he was unrelenting, unsatisfied with anything short of driving Washington from office, and forever fostering in the memory of Americans the belief that Washington had conspired to destroy republicanism. As noted by Tag, quote, The chief charge against the president was that he had ignored the opposition to the treaty expressed by a majority of Americans in petitions and protest meetings, and had acquiesced to the view of self-interested Tory merchant supporters of the treaty. Washington had, in short, undemocratically put himself above the will of the people. As we've seen in the past, Washington would have answered that, by the nature of his position, he was more aware of the larger picture and had been entrusted with the responsibility to make decisions for the best of all Americans. That was not a suitable answer for Bosch, however and he found writers who were more than willing to put pen to paper attacking the president. The most effective attack, however, came from John Beckley, the clerk of the House of Representatives. Astute listeners might remember him from episode 1.14. He was the person who was assigned the task of making copies of the documents linking Alexander Hamilton to his affair with Maria Reynolds, and who went beyond his instructions from James Monroe and made a couple of extra copies for Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Beckley was a close associate of the opposition and, due to the nature of his position, had access to numerous documents which he used, quote, to aid the anti-administration forces whenever possible. This insider knowledge came in handy when Beckley went to write a series of essays that were published beginning in late October 1795 using the pseudonym Calm Observer. Beckley set out to utilize actual data to puncture holes in Washington's Cincinnati image of the humble public servant gaining nothing from his service. As clerk of the House, Beckley had access to Treasury reports that showed that Washington, who had refused to accept a salary as president, but who had requested to be reimbursed for his official expenses, quote, had been allowed to overdraw the amount of his salary by more than $6,000 and even get advances on it in the name of paying his expenses. In other words, Washington was doing better than he would have if he had accepted a salary. Further, this had been done with the approbation of both Treasury secretaries, first Hamilton and now Walcott. As Beckley charged, quote, is there any other man in the government of the United States who would have dared to ask, or to whom Hamilton or Walcott would have presumed to grant the like favor? The opening essay in the series contained a mic drop moment when Beckley wrote, quote, Will not the world be led to conclude that the mask of political hypocrisy has been alike worn by a Caesar, a Cromwell, 
and a Washington? The administration and its supporters immediately jumped into action, with Walcott replying the day after the first Calm Observer essay was published, with an essay of his own published under his own name, not just a pseudonym, in which Walcott asserts that, quote, if there has been an error in advancing monies, the president is not responsible for it. He is merely accountable in a pecuniary view for the act of his agent. As a matter affecting personal character, he is in no manner concerned. After falling on whatever sword that was aimed at Washington, Walcott defends himself, his predecessor, and the Treasury Department, asserting, quote, that not one dollar has been advanced at any time for which there was not an existing appropriation by law. And it is my belief that nothing in the least degree contrary to law has been practiced in respect to the time and manner of making the advances. This will be the first of Walcott's two replies, both published in the Aurora. And Alexander Hamilton wrote to Washington within the week, informing him that, quote, the calm observer requires explanation, and I mean to give one with my name. Thus, at the same time that he was writing the defense, as discussed last episode, Hamilton also published the explanation, an essay outlining the mechanics of, quote, Washington's expense account in the New York Daily Observer. Thankfully, Washington had his Treasury secretaries, present and past, to come to his defense, as was noted by Jeffrey Paisley, quote, thrown back on their heels by the addition of real data to the Republican attack on Washington, Federalist editors were unable to do much more than impugn the putative source of the charges or make the inaccurate claim that all high officials got salary advances. Despite their efforts, however, Quote, Hamilton and Walcott could not disprove what the records clearly showed, large advances for most of Washington's presidency. Even the first president was not immune to the public criticism and critique that is quite familiar to contemporary listeners, 2018 as of this recording. Whether justified or not, even Washington was held to public scrutiny. So what did the president himself have to say about it? Naturally, I checked to see what I could find, and the first letter that came up after the publication of the Calm Observer essay on October 23rd was a letter to Hamilton on the 29th. Of all people, Hamilton would be the one that could be expected for Washington to unload his frustrations on, especially in this letter, which was rather lengthy. But no, whatever frustrations Washington had about it, I'm not seeing at the time where he committed them to paper. As the letter to Hamilton on the 29th makes clear, though, there was more than enough to occupy his mind in late 1795 that the calm observer may have been the last thing on his mind. We will pick up with this letter next time in an episode I'd like to call the Not-So-Dream Team. Until then, I'd like to thank Alex again for providing the intro quote for this episode. I'd also like to welcome back on board our audio editor, Andrew Foncook. After filling in during his recent hiatus, I can assure you that his is a key role in this podcast, and I'm very thankful for all of his efforts. If you, like me, could use Andrew's assistance on your podcast or next audio project, drop him a line at Andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, if you have any questions, comments, or Randolph Gate 1795 memorabilia, Send them on to Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source notes for this episode, as well as past episodes, can be found at presidencies.blueberry.com.
That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And you can find all the options to subscribe to the podcast through various mediums, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or TuneIn, among others. Thank you so much again for listening, and take care, dear friends. Until next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.